Breaking news. This is Jess Mason from John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, with a breaking news segment. And unfortunately, I have to talk about rationing. Yeah, I know. We're sick of it, right? In the past couple years, we've had to ration all sorts of things, like IV fluids. Remember that? And we had to ration COVID tests. And now we have to ration IV contrast. That's because, as I'm sure you all know, there's a worldwide shortage at the moment of IV contrast. A plant in Shanghai produces approximately 80% of the world's IV contrast, which is very weird. Doesn't make sense that we're all buying it from the same place. But nevertheless, that plant got shut down because of COVID lockdowns in the area. And even though the plant has already begun to reopen, ASAP anticipates an ongoing shortage until that supply fully recovers. And according to a message from ASAP President Jillian Schmitz, that may go on through June and possibly even into July of 2022. Yuck. So there's some things we have to talk about here. In that message sent out by ASEP, there were some smart phrases that you can use and edit according to your hospital circumstances to sort of justify in your medical decision making why someone didn't get contrast that may have otherwise under normal circumstances got a contrasted study. So take a look at those. There was also a statement recently published by the American College of Radiology with several recommendations. Most of them seem to apply towards medical directors in terms of how you can work with other departments and work with the vials of contrast that you have available to perhaps portion them into smaller aliquots. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk to the bedside clinician, the people like me who are just trying to figure out what to do under these circumstances when it comes to patient care. And they address this a little bit. They basically say, hey, you got to use alternative studies, things like ultrasound, MRI, nuclear medicine. So that's what I'm going to spend the rest of this segment talking about. What can we do? What are the other options and are they reasonable options? So I'm going to break it down by some of the common things that you might be doing imaging for. And we'll talk about other imaging modalities that could be reasonable choices. Aortic dissection. The first one and sort of the elephant in the room is aortic dissection. If you're suspicious for an aortic dissection, we all know that CT angiogram is the gold standard. There's no way around that. But if you don't have contrast, which might be the case right now for many people or soon to be the case, then what can we do instead? Ultrasound is one option. At the bedside, you can check for aortic dissection. You just can't use it to rule it out. There might be findings that you could rule it in, and that could expedite surgical consult or transfer. And that's how the ASEP clinical guidelines recommend that we use ultrasound in the workup of aortic dissection. So helpful doesn't answer the question definitively by any means. What about transesophageal echocardiogram, TEE? I'm just not going to spend a lot of time talking about this because I don't think most emergency departments are equipped to do this in any way. The sensitivity ranges from 86 to 100%, so huge range there. Potentially a very good study, but there's massive barriers to doing this. You need sedation for the patient. You need special equipment, a special team. Not a practical option for most of us. Moving on. MRA of the aorta is another potential option. Clearly not something that you can do for an unstable patient. It's gonna take a while. You're gonna have to lay still. You can't do this for a critical patient. But in someone who is stable, the sensitivity is awesome, 95 to 100%. And the specificity is also in the high 90s. So if the patient's stable, consider doing an MRA of the aorta. And if that's not an option, this might be the patient who gets that rare, precious vial of contrast for the CT angiogram if you have it. Triple A. 
Next is abdominal aortic aneurysm, AAA. Fortunately, we have some good substitutes here. The gold standard, again, would be a CT angiogram. That would be super helpful. We can do some other stuff. So what about ultrasound? Yeah, ultrasound's a great option. It's highly sensitive. You can do it at the bedside, or if you're not comfortable performing that exam, you can have a sonographer come to the bedside to help you out, and you can see if there's an aneurysm there. Now, you can't rule out a rupture of a AAA by not seeing free fluid because you might miss it or it could be a retroperitoneal bleed that you wouldn't see on ultrasound, but at least you can generally see if there is an aneurysm in the aorta. What about a non-contrast CT scan to diagnose a AAA? That's actually a pretty good option. You don't need contrast to see the aneurysm. Adding contrast, of course, is going to increase your sensitivity for seeing a rupture. It's also going to help you see how much is patent lumen versus mural thrombus. So it's helpful, but you can still totally make this diagnosis by seeing an aneurysm on a non-contrast CT in a patient with abdominal pain and hypotension. Kind of a slam dunk here. So I would say go ahead and get a non-contrast CT if you're worried about a AAA. Pulmonary embolism. So we did the elephant in the room. Now let's do the gorilla. Pulmonary embolism. I think most of us are pretty comfortable ordering that CT pulmonary angiogram. Of course, that requires contrast. So this is a really challenging one. We really lean on that CT scan as the gold standard for the diagnosis. But let's talk about this for just a minute. First of all, Ask yourself, does this patient really need imaging at all? It seems to me like we've really lowered our threshold for when we're ordering the CT pulmonary angiogram because they're just so darn easy to order and they're so fast and it gives you the answer and you, you know you're not going to miss anything. But just step back for a minute. Use your gestalt. Use clinical decision tools. Become familiar with the years criteria if you're not already familiar with that. And we have this in the Corpendium chapter on venous thromboembolism. We also have a calculator that helps you calculate a year's score. And that basically allows you to use a higher cutoff point for D-dimer under certain circumstances. So look that up. And before you order imaging, just ask yourself, do they really need imaging at all? If the answer is yes, think about a VQ scan, a ventilation perfusion scan. So this is listed by the American College of Radiology in the same category as getting a CTPA, which they call usually appropriate. The sensitivity and specificity are fairly equivalent to a CTPA. Sensitivity is about 85%. Specificity is in the low 90s. So that's a pretty good option, except that there are some other significant barriers to ordering this test. The patient needs to have a normal chest x-ray. That right there is going to disqualify a lot of patients. Then you have to have the protocols and dynamics in your hospital system to be able to order this study. So who out there listening to this could tell me right now if you can order a VQ scan from the emergency department and it will actually get done? Anyone? Bueller? That's because most of us probably just order a CT pulmonary angiogram and don't really do a whole lot of VQ scans, pretty much ever. But this is something that I think that we could work on. Is this going to be a Monday through Friday 9 to 5 kind of test? Is it an option where you work? Is it something that you can get done on the nights and weekends? These are questions that need to be answered at your individual hospitals and emergency departments. Nuclear medicine studies obviously require a nuclear medicine technician. You also have to have a patient who's able to cooperate in terms with breath holding and positioning. So VQ scan is a good option as long as we can overcome some of these barriers. And of course, you select the right patient for the study. Remember, you can also do a bedside ultrasound looking for signs of right heart strain. You just can't firmly make the diagnosis based off of ultrasound alone. And we'll share some links for content on how to do that bedside ultrasound. 
Don't forget, another great option is a lower extremity Doppler looking for a DVT, because if you find it, you're going to anticoagulate the patient anyway. Appendicitis. Do you need a contrasted CT to diagnose appendicitis? Well, some of you might be rolling your eyes at me a little bit right now, thinking, we put this issue to rest a long time ago. You don't need it. Case closed. But for many of us, we still order the CT abdomen pelvis with contrast. But just know there's actually pretty good evidence to support doing a non-contrasted CT. There was a large meta-analysis published in 2010 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine on the diagnostic accuracy of non-contrast CT for appendicitis. And what did it find? Very good sensitivity and specificity for appendicitis in the mid-90s. So this was determined to be adequate. And if you were thinking about, well, what about other forms of contrast, like oral contrast or rectal contrast? You don't need that either. So if you're worried about appy, just go ahead and get a non-contrast CT of the abdomen and pelvis. Or maybe an ultrasound, if you could start with that, even better. Diverticulitis. Diverticulitis. I unfortunately can't find any clear data establishing the sensitivity and specificity for a non-contrast CT looking for diverticulitis. But what I did find was a retrospective study on non-contrast CT for renal calculi that looked at alternative diagnoses. So in other words, you're getting a CT non-contrast thinking the patient has a renal stone and whoops, they actually had something else like diverticulitis. And that happened in about 1% to 2% of the patients that got the non-contrasted CT. Some good news here. They were still able to make the diagnosis of diverticulitis based off of some secondary findings, things like bowel wall thickening or fat stranding. Now, these are very low numbers, and this wasn't the specific intent of the study, but to me, it is reassuring to know that if I got that non-contrast CT, we're probably going to see secondary signs of diverticulitis. And in the right setting, a patient, for example, with left lower quadrant pain, I think this is a reasonable approach. Another modality that you might not have even thought about for diagnosing diverticulitis is an abdominal ultrasound. In some studies, the sensitivity is above 90%, but of course, this is operator-dependent, and where I work, we don't routinely ask our stenographers to do ultrasounds for diverticulitis. So consider it as an option, but recognize the significant limitations. Generalized abdominal pain. Here's a tough one. Generalized abdominal pain in older adults. This is a high-risk population, and in one retrospective review of patients ages 80 and older with abdominal pain, 55% of them had a positive CT with actionable findings. These diagnoses included things like bowel obstructions, bowel ischemia, appendicitis, diverticulitis, and vascular emergencies like dissection, AAA, or arterial or venous thromboses. Now, fortunately, we can probably start with a non-contrast CT in many of these cases to make that diagnosis, and you may have to reserve the contrast just for concern for vascular emergencies. Trauma and strokes. When it comes to trauma and strokes, these are difficult ones, and I think we really have to work with our consultants. If it's a trauma, talk with your trauma surgeon about whether or not they really need imaging, and if so, what will be the benefit of contrast for that particular patient. If you don't have a trauma service where you work, consider maybe a non-contrast scan, ultrasound, or perhaps if the patient's stable, transferring the patient and letting the receiving facility make that decision or talk it over with the accepting trauma surgeon. When it comes to strokes, we also have to work with our consultants, interventional radiology and neurology. Could you just get a non-contrast head CT? Or is this a case where you really need the contrast for CT angiograms of the head and neck and CT perfusion? 
In many cases, it may be reasonable to do the non-contrast head CT and get MRA head and neck during the admission. Summary. So what's the summary here? Overall, we're going to try to limit IV contrast to things that really need it, things like vascular studies, if we even have it available for that. Think of other imaging modalities that might be able to answer the clinical question and lean on your exam and your assessment to guide focused imaging. Discuss within your department how you're going to ration contrast so that way one clinician's behavior isn't wildly different than someone else's. And work with other departments in your hospital and community so you have a common goal. Another great tip, just pick up the phone and call your radiologist. They're usually super nice and they can discuss with you if you really need contrast or if there's some other modality that can help the patient out. So just give them a call when you're not sure. There's no simple answer here, but perhaps there's a silver lining and I just really want to leave y'all with something positive. This might force us to be frankly more judicious about who gets a CT scan. Now, I really hope that doesn't come at the expense of harm to patients. But maybe, just maybe, we're going to have a net benefit in terms of decreased radiation exposure, decreased expenses, and shorter throughput times for our departments and hospitals.